OTB GAA. Through when Mike retired, I became the heaviest player in the dressing room, so I was often on Paul Gadden's back before we games. <laughs> Subscribe to the OTB GAA podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts. The Sunday Papers on Off the Ball. Welcome along, Sunday Papers coming at you. Plenty going on, as you can imagine. The dubs are all over the back pages after yesterday's win against Monaghan. So picture here of James McCarthy, who's been extraordinary all year and continues um, to do his thing. The final frontier, Dublin beat Monaghan to reach first All-Ireland final since 2020. 117 to 13 points, slightly deceptive scoreline if you didn't see the game. They were level on 60 minutes and then the dubs did their thing and then beneath that Duncan Castles has PSG are now ready to join the race for Harry Kane so Kane has agreed terms it seems with Bayern but PSG are about to get involved and uh, it seems Harry Kane has a double your money offer from Spurs on the table but that Daniel Levy says uh, Castles will absolutely sell him this summer if no deal is agreed he's not letting them go for free next year so that's the Sunday Times the uh, Sunday Independent have a picture of Brian Fenton quiet-ish first half only-ish but uh, second half and particularly in those uh, final 10-15 minutes he came to the fore as he tends to do Fenton fires Dublin to final and uh, Dermot Crow writes that the rock goal put the uh, gloss on finish for Farrell's men Next, we have uh, Sunday World, Rocky Road to Dublin. That's, um, again, yesterday's win, 117 to 13 points. Costello, the star man, with uh, Dean Rock's late goal, finally uh, seen off Brave Farney Army is the uh, lead there. Sun Sport has uh, Desi Farrell looking ahead to the final, but also next plan up, Vera, we have scenarios ready if Denise is injured. This is uh, Vera Pau, who will come to in a few moments' time talking about uh, potentially and it is only potentially the loss of Denise O'Sullivan after the uh, abandoned game against Columbia on Friday night where she picked up an injury. Not a fracture is the good news. Then we have the mail on Sunday. That James McCarthy picture again where he's uh, screaming at full time to the sky and it's Dublin 117, Monaghan 13 points. Monaghan make dubs, earn place in final. And uh, Mark Gallagher, Pow tries to remain positive after Columbia chaos and injury to O'Sullivan. Um, so they are your back pages. Very happy to say we have John Green in, editor of the Sunday Independent Sports section, and Dan McDonnell of the Irish Independent. You're both very welcome. Thank you. Uh, on Dublin Mead, they're both winning yesterday at Crow Park. A decent semi-final between Monaghan and Dublin, level after... 60 minutes I think they were level six times throughout Monaghan never actually took the lead and before that Colm O'Rourke and me the Talchon Cup champions Joe Brawley uh, writing about it here on page two of the Sunday Independent he notes that Colm O'Rourke conducted his uh, well some to be fair of his post-match interview in Latin when he was asked how Mead would celebrate he said nunc est bibendum which means now is the time for drinking and uh, he uh, pays tribute to O'Rourke as a man who'd been written off as a bit of a dinosaur pre-game not least next to Conor Laverty who probably says is a thoroughly modern coach expert in the blanket defensive counter-attacking system against Column, a dinosaur hopelessly lost in the helter-skelter of the 80s, 90s but Brawley basically says that um, O'Rourke has a, a certain trust in his players to be brave like Brian Cody he trusts his players he treats them as 
adults and uh, Broly, who you know has talked about this kind of thing ad nauseum really the endless rehearsal and constant instruction which creates fear is replaced by Colm O'Rourke with an encouragement to go out and give life a bloody go so in this second half they played brilliantly thrilling football all adventure long kicking dramatic high catching points from distance Jack Flynn scored four monstrous points high up over the block uh, reminiscent of a young Colm O'Rourke no greater compliment will ever be paid to the boy Uh, so that's his general sense of um, O'Rourke just a big tribute to uh, the dinosaur who actually knows a thing or two I'm not sure who I was actually uh, I'm not sure who on the team last night in, in, the, in the paper came up with the headline O'Rourke fluent in the language of football but obviously um, Colin was uh, a columnist for us for many many years uh, 30 years or so and that sums him up perfectly he, he he eats sleeps and breathes football but he does it slightly differently I think and he has been portrayed a little bit as a dinosaur and actually Joe was meant to be writing a piece about the solely focused on the Dublin match uh, last night, but he he rang and said that he'd he'd like to do a little bit about Colm as well, which was fine. And he captures him really well. He he, he says, I've toured the corridors of St. Pat's and Nav and the school where Colm was principal up until this year in the company of Colm and enjoyed his easy mischievous relationship with the kids and staff and their obvious affection and respect for him. I've walked, I've done that tour as well and it's it's incredible to see the way he interacted with with the teachers and with the students and there was a very obvious affection and there was always a bit of mischief there and famously on every Friday afternoon he sent an email around to all the parents of the kids in the school that was a sort of a pr- passing itself off loosely as a newsletter but which was always full of devilment and jokes and crack and uh, he just has that easy way with him and that translates into how he's training this Mead football team Mead have been pretty you know on a downward spiral for quite some time now and I, I spoke to him after I, I, after he took the job and he said the first thing he, he intended to do was to go in and get them to enjoy their football again and you can see it yesterday with the team the way they played and with the way they celebrated winning the Talton Cup you know, so, some years ago, people in Mead might have thought that the Talton Cup was beneath them, but uh, not not anymore. They're, they know where they are in football's pecking order, and happy that they have a group of players and a manager that they think can start the journey back to you know where they're challenging Dublin in Leinster. Yeah. He just has a different attitude to football, I think, than than a lot of people and. I know he gave a presentation. They had a meeting several months ago with the, with the players, and there was a PowerPoint presentation. And even the thoughts of him doing a PowerPoint presentation kind of seems a bit odd. But he he, he did the PowerPoint presentation about what they were planning and what they were going to do. And uh, he he didn't tell me this; it was somebody else who was at the meeting. But the final point, um, and his last point before he signed off, uh, was uh, and remember, fellas, enjoy yourselves and enjoy life. And. Uh, you know, we don't think we see enough of that, and we certainly haven't seen much of that in Gaelic football this summer. No. 2023, Sean Boylan and Colm O'Rourke are still at the helm of uh, I actually, football. I met Sean recently, and uh, I, I'd known quite well. He's, he's a relation of my wife's, and uh, he's he, I'd say he just can't believe that he's, he's, he's here and he's back again, and he's sitting in a dugout in Crow Park, and apparently... Um, talks a lot to the players, gives gives talks and does a lot of work behind the scenes and you know, sometimes you'd wonder about 
the kind of the dynamic now between young people and sort of somebody who's, who's uh, in his 70s and the, he, he's adored by the, by the squad and he brings something different just as he did all those years ago, first time around. Another good winner for the Talchin Cup. Yeah, it's a good start for the good two years for it, isn't it? I mean, yeah. And, and proof that the Talchin Cup was absolutely needed, you know. Mm. Uh, the idea that there shouldn't be two tiers in Gaelic football was, was has for some time now has clearly been outdated, you know. Yeah. Uh, just on the dubs to finish off that Joe Brody piece. I mean, 60th minute, they are level at 12 points apiece and then uh, Fenton scored a point and then dubs another turnover of a defender and then they win the next two kickouts and suddenly they're three points up and then the goal happens and it's done. He says the dubs played below their best for most of the game. They looked ordinary at times, dull and lethargic. Most of them will be annoyed how they played. They underestimated Monaghan. They disrespected them. They'll be bristling for the next fortnight. As Mickey Hart said on the BBC, the perfect way for them to reach the uh, final. That was they, kind of the atmosphere yesterday. They were like the last 20 minutes, weren't they? They were were they trading on memory almost. I mean, they, they, just that those experienced players, James McCarthy, uh, Jack McCaffrey, I thought Fenton really in the last 15 minutes took the fight to them. Obviously, Cormac Costello, who's, who's still in his 20s, late 20s, but had been consistent all through but those big guys Mick Fitzsimons full back three of those guys are chasing their ninth All-Ireland medal and it felt like the old boxers just trading on instinct and trading on memory and going to the well well one more time now in in the final Yeah it has that feel Uh, so that's the the sense of the GEA yesterday Kerry against uh, Derry is on the menu today the other story, which is in all the back pages, is the Irish team over in Australia, Vera Pau's quotes. So, for instance, here on the back page of the Mail, Pau tries to remain positive after Columbia chaos. Uh, Vera Pau insisting she doesn't regret, regret, regret choosing Columbia. Uh, O'Sullivan, Denise O'Sullivan, suffered a bad shin injury following a challenge in the 19th minute of this behind closed doors match and uh, Pau says they have some hope she might make the Australia game the situation is going to become much clearer in the next 24 hours or so so uh, she said that Ruisha Littlejohn had been the victim of a head high challenge a couple of minutes before the O'Sullivan tackle and it was on that basis that they decided to uh, end the match there's a more detailed piece inside which I'll come to in a second but general thoughts Dan this build up to this World Cup has, and it's something Eamon Sweeney touches on as well in his piece, from the Celtic Symphony after the qualification to the uh, athletic report last week and now an abandoned game. It's not kind of this straightforward, this is just a wonderful story, history in the making uh, for this Irish team kind of a vibe it, it, that, no. that kind of <laughs> that straightforward feel good factor hasn't actually been there and, and, and eight nine months ago you would have anticipated that yeah no it's look I mean I suppose when, when you know you're doing the papers this week it's the Sunday before the first game and you, and you know there's going to be a lot of coverage naturally and there is like some good pieces out there you know just sort of you know Dave Kelly with Lily Ag and there's a neat fatty piece and the mail has this pull out section here so there's yeah, that kind of a a, there is a lot of aspect. that stuff but it's yeah. it does seem and I know quite a few of the sort of lads are working down there that it's it's proven far more eventful than than sort of anticipated because it is this historic moment and you probably would have expected that to build up 
at this stage would have all just been in the nicest way possible more of the same of what you're talking about there this is a wonderful but I mean, the story is the story. I mean, it's it's an evolving story even now. For the even for the sake of the Sunday papers today, like it's it's evolving overnight because even since these papers have come out, the footage of that Denise O'Sullivan tackle is now doing the rounds. I think the the the, the people covering it at the moment are now trying to ascertain can they get more footage of that game because. These rare power quotes are incredibly strong. I mean, you look across the papers, and as you mentioned, you know the the, the level of aggression in the Mark Gallagher piece. Pow insisted that she had never seen a level of aggression like it in her forty-seven years in the game, and. Um, Notice Paul Rowan profile of Vera Pau, I mean, which again sort of sketches out the colourful football life that she has lived. And she's seen a lot of things in mm. the football world and has been in a lot of sort of fraught situations. And, you know, across the paper, she's talking about, you know, the, the, the Little John challenge, like nothing she's ever seen before. Um, but since this has happened, I presume the Colombians at a point um, have decided, well... Let's sort of leak out a little bit of footage here. I don't know how it's actually come to come to get out there into the public domain. And it's I'm not saying it's a great challenge on Denise O'Sullivan. It's a bad challenge, but maybe the initial view of it doesn't quite fit the image of of what we've seen. And I suppose you step back from it. Um, I mean, the Irish team were taken off the pitch in a game after like 23 minutes with Vera Pau talking about, you know, Jonathan Hill, the CEO, getting a call back in Dublin from Mark Canham, the director of football, which is a, a sort of a mad situation in itself, if you think about it, should we take the players off the pitch in this match here? So, I mean, in terms of a preparation for a tournament, um, I'm not going to say it's disastrous, right? But it's definitely um, bumpy. A, a really bumpy road because anyone who's watched the team will know that O'Sullivan is you know, she's their their best player, the most yeah, creative player. And um you know, along with Katie McCabe, but O'Sullivan is the heartbeat of the team really. And you see the I think it was the the mirror, I think, have a photograph of her in a protective boot and it's like concerning. But there's probably a story around it now too that you could do without. Um that you're now almost how may have to at some point come out and justify the decision to take the team off in the match or explain it in some way. Um because you know, is there footage going to get out there that challenges the version of events? So um, it's not ideal. Like it's a great news story. This team getting to the World Cup, but I mean, we myself and John spoke about it a little bit outside. I mean, you go to a tournament or you go to an Olympics, and and things happen. You know, and it's, it it never quite always fits the bill of how you imagine it in the sort of the picture book of the mind when you qualify mm. relative to an actuality. Life happens and they, they're really experiencing that. Mark Gallagher's piece in the Mail on Sunday is very good. It, it charts the entire uh, journey to the Columbia game. Ireland had watched Columbia in their previous seven games. This wasn't what they had expected. And as you said, Dan Powell insisted she had never seen a level of aggression like it in her 47 years in the game. She saw genuine fear in the eyes of her players as they were concerned about missing out on the biggest moment of their career. As you say, the director of football from the FBI, Mark Cannon, was just off a flight and he went uh, to the game. He was a few minutes late for kickoff, but he was there. And then they got on the phone to Jonathan Hill. As for the Colombians, they are not best pleased with how they've been portrayed. Their uh, defender, Daniela Caracas, has uh, suggested in a now um, notorious social media post that the uh, Irish were little girls. And she said, let them eat SH1T. Now, Pow hadn't heard, says Mark Geller, what Caracas had said before yesterday's uh, briefing with newspaper journalists, and she seemed appalled by those words. I'm sorry, what? 
a wide-eyed Paul replied. Uh, to be honest, I'm a bit shocked hearing this. Let's just say that maybe they were emotional too, is what Vera Pez said. She said the game started normally, very normally. It just started up then in a way that had no turnaround. First, there was a huge challenge on Ruisha Littlejohn, a challenge outside the laws of the game. And she says... Um, Within two minutes, there was this challenge on Denise. So it was a build-up of this. She said that the Colombian bench did not instigate their players' aggressive approach. She had no issue with the bench whatsoever. She did say they were of little help in calming the situation. Uh, she says as well that the Colombian staff handled the situation really well. That's once the decision was made to end the game. They took their players off while we were discussing what we would do. And that was in the moment that we were in discussion with the referees. They also calmly left the venue, went to the bus and left. And it seems that um, the Irish uh, squad at large played a full 11-a-side match afterwards. So the players did get the preparation. They did play a match. Um, it was to ensure the few moments of madness, says Mark Gallagher, didn't disturb preparation for Thursday's clash in Sydney with the Matildas. It remains to be seen just what the consequences will be of Friday's events on the uh, World Cup. Uh, the reason the footage hasn't been uploaded is there's no obligation to do so because the match didn't uh, conclude. Mm. Um, so that's where we are. And look, it was put to pow that players have had rough, rough treatment before, not least O'Sullivan and McCabe. And she says it's not comparable. This was far worse. Um, the Irish players have their first day off today since arriving in uh, Brisbane and Mark Aller says the sense was that they'll need it given the uh, toll that the past 36 hours might have taken can I um, not to pierce a good old media story can I just offer the sense I don't think this is a big deal in the slightest I think the players have already forgotten about this I think this is ancient history I think this has no bearing on anything and if Vera Pau in a nothing match effectively a training match said you know what bit too hot for me let's just wrap it up and go fine by me I'm, I'm like already over this I, I don't see how this could have any negative consequences on anything well, uh, you know as long as um, Denise Sullivan is fit to play the, the first game oh, sure but, if, but Pau's decision to wrap up the game which is the controversy the whole, I, 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 think, I don't I, like, I think it's but so if you touched it there it's, it's, the whole thing feels odd it's just yeah the whole thing feels odd and the messaging coming back feels odd and we were living the moment as I'm sure you were here yeah. through the weekend trying to you know find out what was going on and what was happening and the updates we were getting back put, put, some, put some flesh on the bones of odd <laughs> the journalists were allowed to go to the game and then they got there and they were locked out and then the game starts and then it's, it's abandoned after 19 minutes or 23 minutes and there was two yellow cards or there wasn't there was a bad tackle and then you look at the footage you know and it, you know, you almost had this, as I said to you before we started, it was almost, we, we, we had this image in our heads of some somebody coming, hurtling through the air, yeah. flying with a, a dangerous tackle. It, it looks like there was a bit of a tackle in me and, and my foot looks like it might have been yeah. left in. But very much within, very but much within the norms of a game of football tackle. Like I'm, a, football, I'm a manager, it's, week, it's a few days beforehand and I said, oh, I don't want, she's after getting injured, I, I don't want any more injuries, let's just call this now, this isn't, this actually isn't going to do what I wanted it to do, so it's better we just have a train and say, so what, that's a good idea, yeah. let's do that. And a lot of the problem to me coming at this from, from a media and trying to decipher it or for Dan is, is the lack of information almost. There was, a, there was a picture going around of somebody took of her wearing a moon boot in the hotel that maybe shouldn't have been taken or maybe should have been taken. They don't want it out. They yeah. do want it out. Just tell us what's happening. Draw a line under it and move on to the next thing. And But instead it's just been this drip, 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 drip. And it... 
yeah. all goes to make something that's not that extraordinary into something that appears to be extraordinary. And the only thing we really care about is is our best or second best player injured for Thursday or not or has she a chance of making it or doesn't she that's really all we want to know yeah, yeah and like I think Joe yeah, I wouldn't then play it too much in the sense of I know what you're saying about the, the noise around it but like you know, Vera Powell's whole reputation is around being very meticulous in terms of her preparation like this World Cup this is a World Cup plan that's been sketched out for months back you know they took on certain games a big part you know she's actually I think has a reputation for being very like uh you know, sort of obsessed with the whole injury minutia. prevention and yeah. the minutiae of that. Raymond Verheyen has been working, who is a, a people will be aware of in his past with Jurgen Klopp. So, you know, I would imagine everything is done to the minute in terms of preparation and to, to get the pitch right. And if you have one game in the country before you play your match and it's, you, you have to take the players off the pitch after 23 minutes of it, mm. um, and you have players probably. Be like you know, they had to put out a they had to put out a message from Denise O'Sullivan on the social media accounts, which was a bit odd as well because yeah, didn't even make reference to her well being. Um, it's become a bit of a you know a distraction, I would say. So I know I know what you're saying. Like that's no doubt what the FEI line will be now. We've forgotten about this already. We've moved on with it. But I mean, we'll see. Like we'll see. So, so like, there's, an, the there's a history though? of Ireland in major tournaments as well. Of and it's like I know, know but of, you can't no, bring that. No, 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 no. You're not. You, 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 you've, you've jumped in before I finish my sentence. Right. Can I finish it? Do you know what I was going to say there? I was talking about playing players with injuries. You know, and having that real stress. Like think of Ireland in the Euro 2012. But that's well, did, that's every team. That's every. But, yeah, but you're. That's life. But that's, I think you're suggesting that this hasn't been unsettling. Like that, this is forgotten about. I oh, don't think I, it's no, forgotten about because Denise O'Sullivan's gone round in a boot. I, I think Denise O'Sullivan being yeah. injured is very unsettling, but that can happen in a training match. It can happen in a training session, or it can happen in a competitive match. It's happened here. It's very unfortunate. It's nobody's fault. Like that's life. Players get injured. I just I, I don't get the sense of like this is a great distraction or issue like the, the calling off of the game so mm. you, you, you I don't think Denise Sullivan's injury is a massive you don't think pity. when Powell's like doing their you know doing her pre-match stuff for the Australia game with some Colombian not going to be there asking about oh this is you know you've shamed our, you know, our country all this noise I don't think it's helpful I'm not, I'm not saying yeah. it might be a great in some ways you can argue it's a great distraction because it takes complete focus off the game in their own minds and you yeah. can you can flip the, like they're about to play in front of 83,000 people on Thursday whatever the biggest game of pretty much their lives mm. and you know maybe they're not sitting around thinking about the enormity of this all the time there's some other thing that they can get caught up in you could spin that in a, in a different direction but there's definitely been an oddness as John pointed out to the, how the whole thing has played out oh, look it's, very, it's very unusual and maybe it's excessive caution but she's entitled to be excessively cautious five days out from a game. I just think, like it's the it's it's in the papers here, and it's it's unusual. So we're we're curious about it, and the behind closed door aspect means we didn't really see the game. But you forget all the players saw the game. I wouldn't think they post traumatic stress based on the tackle on Denise O'Sullivan. And so I think it's a quick five minute. Do you know what? Not worth it. Everyone, we just got the game called off. We'll move on. Everyone happy? Everyone happy? It's your day off tomorrow. Great. Mm. I just think we're intrigued by it because we weren't. There, I, I, I just, I can't see how this rebounds in any great way. I wasn't suggesting it was going to rebound okay. anyway. What's yeah. the, what's the issue? I think, I think it's just, it's, it, it ties in with the fact that as we as we sort of presented this piece at the start that it hasn't been the type of build up to the World Cup that you would have envisaged, and this has been another layer to it, and it just goes to show how you can have the best laid plans, but they just get thrown asunder by 
circumstances and this yeah. is what they're this is what they're dealing with now and as with all these things we may find out in time the impact they had which could have been nothing at all or else it actually has been because I mean, they're trying to do a preppy I know what you're saying with the O'Sullivan injury but even just I don't know is there st- even is it just the administrators down there are caught up with all this oh god like you know back and forth with the Colombians and what's coming out and they've made their official crisis stance. management Let and them all this shit. stuff that's all the Colombians have to say <laughs> that's with the situation. what they've said <laughs> have the Colombians got more to come you know <laughs> but it, this, this, this footage of the game has been like you know I don't know been burned somewhere or whatever like I, these I, 23 I, minutes that they're like uh, we, we all want to see these 23 uh, minutes in 20 years these yeah. 23 minutes will be uh, uh, legendary it, I, what did you think of the tackle as well the, I just said it I mean like it, I, we only have Free one kick angle. Of it. Like, we yeah. only have one angle of it. It, it looks like not it, even a red. But it looks like one where it's like you leave one in on someone. Yeah. As 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 the old pro would say, you saw the chance there to, you know, leave something in. It doesn't look great. But as I said, the you know when you've committed stuff to the record about you know the worst challenge you've seen in all your years previously. Well, then obviously you know the Colombians are probably going to say, I wouldn't mind seeing. Let's see the footage of that too. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, but it looked it looked like a. A bad challenge, but I, I agree with your view that I'm not sure if it's a red card challenge. The, the wider issue, I suppose, it, the wider issue, and Eamon touches on it in the Sunday Independent, Eamon Sweeney, but uh, it's, yeah. it's it's everywhere. Is this has just become some kind of a rolling mall of distraction after distraction now since the team, since yeah. the squad was named? Um, I mean, there was Katie McCabe at that press conference before the France game was clearly mm. very irritated. So it's more. I think it's probably more to do with this now. All these dist- distractions and elements of bad luck that have been creeping into the, you know, in, even in terms of the draw that they got. It's that kind of thing. And uh, just to mention briefly, on that vein, I mean, this is a, a, Nadine Doherty touches on this on the independent, but Orly McElroy in the Mail just underneath Mark Gallagher's piece is talking about we're we're a few days out from a World Cup. Where's the excitement? Where's the penetration into kind of everyday life yeah. of the fact that we have a team just about to go into the World Cup? And she talks about um, it appears that kids should be running around in their sky branded jerseys with McCabe 11 or Sullivan 10 printed on the back. But it appears they can't because it seems impossible to get sky jerseys into junior sizes. So she's talking about spending a day last week running around from shop to shop trying to get gear That's that celebrates. This, this team and its achievement and she signs off by saying women's sport is constantly underestimated and so it seems are the supporters so these are the kind of things around this team that okay they're, they're going to be oblivious of that but this this feeling that you what is it four days away now five days away it, for people who who want to see women's sport become more visible and more mainstream it feels like we're cre- creeping ever closer to the possibility of an opportunity being missed to celebrate it properly. Mm. Um, I, I just can't understand there isn't merchandise all over the place. There's, there's been some issue around that as well, yeah. Like, I think, I mean, look, it's a good problem to have. It is. Relative to where the team has come from. Um you know when they you know they 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 couldn't even get appropriate gear for the team. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. so I suppose to to have a situation where the fans are sort of uh, they're, they're, that that has come up. But like the ad that's running on TV is is a really really powerful. powerful. Yeah, I think it'll ramp. I do think that this stuff will probably ramp up. I think the news cycle is shorter for a lot of things now, and I feel yeah. maybe the long build up. There's so much else going on. I can understand that to a degree. I yeah. feel like once we get to the Tuesday Wednesday afternoon, you know. 
you know, even maybe maybe it's unusual that it might take till that first match and people on Thursday morning are suddenly jarring to a standstill and then suddenly it's there, mm. you know, and it's there. But as as John alludes to, you know, you, if Ireland, um, you get a heroic result, you'd imagine there's more people looking for merchandise yeah. than the aftermath and, and you can't and satisfy I mean, it's, that. It's not that know? the players are invisible. Like one of the great things about, you know, um, and the same applies to, to, to ladies football and to Camogie, um, the, the, the players are extremely uh, open and yeah. available to, to media in a way that you know isn't the same in men's sports. So th- these are visible. These are people that are easily identifiable that kids can kind of relate to. And yeah, you, you just would fear that on the Sunday before a World Cup starts that it's a, it's very low key. Yeah, I I would tend to agree with Dan. I think come Wednesday and then I mean Thursday morning is going to be wall to wall you'll turn on the radio it'll be huge excitement and then it'll kick on for the next what 10 days after that yeah see the real challenge I think is is actually what happens after the tournament but that's probably it's probably not a discussion for today I mean they're trying to sell a game on the Aviva yes and probably off the back of this Um, but I suppose you know there's possibly times in the year you know where you know you could have a women's international around that time and there mightn't be anything in the Sunday papers you know like it's just the nature of it's it's we in this country and as other sports now with the hockey teams and, and sort of women's rugby six nations winning teams yeah. that you have your window which everyone is great actually for getting caught up in the moment but the real battle is the sustained discussion yes, and yes. that's obviously um, maybe that's something at the end of the year we're reflecting on this Irish World Cup journey through that lens No fair and look if there's no such thing as bad publicity look at this few days out a bit of something bit of drama Joe stuck bit of drama in, yeah. bit, of, bit of mystery as I, as I said, just like, you know, you know you're just like, I'm trying to play it down you're trying to play yeah. it down I mean yeah it doesn't, I mean you touched on it doesn't even rank in, in our great uh, sporting scandal you know going, no. we, we just don't see I say, was saying it outside we just don't seem to be able to go anywhere for a big tournament without something, something happening yeah. something going wrong yeah. let's take a short break Dan McDonald, John Green staying with us back in just one moment Welcome back. So uh, we'll turn from World Cup to... Oh, I say this with trepidation. We won't spend too long on this. If you have had your fill of the Oroctus this week, I get it. We've all had a lot of Oroctus now. I was there, Joe, for six hours. So oh, well, you okay. talked to me about it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm sorry it was tough for you dealing with it for whatever, a couple hours on the show. It was You tough. could have sat through the whole thing. No. Oh and for my sins, I sat through it at home. Uh, no, yeah, see, there was the Labour debate on football that morning as well, so there was, it, was a, it was a full day of it. Well, Shane McGrath, I think, captures a general feeling out there, which is just that the politicians are of a certain standard in so many instances. So he's talking here about the Oireachtas Committee on the Future of Broadcasting, where to be fair in the main it was about GEA Go and the GEA so the headline is lots of sob stories but little light grandstanding tales of the vulnerable allow politicians to ignore sports meteor issues and uh, I think this is just a point everybody will uh, agree with pretty swiftly and we can move on so he mentions the Fianna Fáil TD Christopher O'Sullivan I have to say I thought this was a joke as well that he was bringing this up as a serious point but he said basically he brought up an elderly gentleman who was unable to access Cork Tipperary on GA Go for whatever reason he doesn't give the reasons whether it was financial or technological I don't know but uh, he had to watch the match in his son-in-law's home and this was a great inconvenience that is the end of that story and then Maddie McGrath 
as uh, Shane brilliantly says, reliably failing to stay in the same postal district as the topic, roared in the same committee uh, about an older man who couldn't get into a club game in Tipperary because of the move towards a cashless payment. And Tom Ryan took a deep breath and had to inform Maddie that, you know, this had been the situation for a decade. But it was, I don't know, news to Matty or he hadn't got over it yet, but he brought that up. And then in fairness, Tommy Conlon covers it brilliantly as well on the Sunday Independent. The GA, to their credit, have like a on the QT kind of a plan B in that instance where if somebody comes up and they just have to pay in cash for whatever reason and they've no other way of doing it. Tom Ryan sort of probably didn't want to say it too loudly in case everybody starts doing it, although why they would, I don't know. But he, he said, look, the plan there is we just let them in. So of the two million that they uh, make in gate receipts, 15,000 euro comes from cash at turnstiles. And Tommy says um, it was uh, a beating heart, a touch of compassion, a relic of old decency in the midst of all the uh, computerised and dehumanised protocols of modern commerce. But that was exercising Matty McGrath. And um, Shane basically concludes for every TD or senator who had done their research and who was interested in answers, there is at least one who grandstands and plays the occasion for cheap, cheap points, easy attention. It's precisely how the political system engages with sport. They use it as a podium when times are good and then when there's a controversy, they howl in outrage and trip over each other in pursuit of the easiest, laziest points. And uh, he mentions Brendan Griffin, the Kerry TD, talking about so many deprived children around the country not seeing David Clifford's pass. Shane writes, there is no way surely that an adult could believe that there are children whimpering about their inability to see the famed pass of the week. Um, Not to mention they could have seen it in the highlights. I mean, the kids can see it. You know, I watched the Sunday game as a kid. I survived if I didn't see the live game. And uh, he concludes by saying, come the All-Ireland finals, the best seats in Crow Park will groan under the weight of delighted TDs and senators. Their access will be uninterrupted as they celebrate the glories of the GA. I, I dare say, Dan, you share... Shane McGrath's uh, sense of frustration with so oh. many of our politicians and yeah. their interactions with sport. Yeah, because like, I mean, there was a full, there was a football debate that morning, and as well, and it was a sort of a labour motion, and you know, some good points. But it, it is like um, it's like these American town hall presidential debates we watch, where it's like part of the thing is, well, I spoke to you know. You know, Denise, a 44-year-old in Idaho. And it's just like, it's the same thing. So we need a case study. Everyone needs a case study. And I know John and, and others made the point this week. It's just the sheer frustration of these committee hearings. Because within, there was an opportunity to have a lot of important discussions around this. Naturally, like, this is the power of the GEA. Uh, and particularly because it, it's almost the effectiveness of the GEA, as we know, it's like the, the, it sort of touches every parish and it runs in line with how our political system works. Yeah. It, they literally run hand in hand with this country, that your whole existence is, is based around you know, all politics being local. So it, it was impossible for anyone to independently almost contribute to debate in very general terms um, and, and move it on. Like there was the odd, odd sort of TD who would come in with some sh- short, sharp questioning, which was quite effective. I think Alan, Alan Dillon, Dillon was be, mentioned. Alan Dillon being yeah. a good example. And we've seen a lot of people even who may not have watched this, but they've watched the Topri stuff, the RTE stuff, you know, can get a flavour of how it works. And there was Shane Castles was there, asked a couple of questions, and we were touching it later around a, a different subject because there was actually like TG Catter were there and there was a couple of other broadcasting issues that I think could have been raised. Like this is, I don't know when they're going to get all these people in a room again um, to talk about this, but of course, 
it was pretty much there. There was uh, for most of the politicians, it was like, well, it's a GEA issue. Uh, I need to be seen to be vocal on this, even if my point is exactly the same point as the person who spoke previously. Yeah. And that's and that's a shame. But I mean, this is how um, this is how democracy works here. Well, and that's what the, it was. Their, their local um, office will clip up their question to the GEA, and it'll be all over local social. Media. And like even I, was, I think the point was made somewhere else this week. Um, you know, like Brendan Griffin was certainly. I mean, certainly. I mean, it seems like any politician from Kerry definitely takes it in a particular direction. But I mean, everyone's at it. But he, he's even, he isn't even standing for election next time. So it's not even a sort of a, a long range election play. It's just like a condition. Mm. But this is part of um, this is part where you have to bring it. But um, I mean, it's deeply it's deeply frustrating because I did feel like almost your frustration with it would would almost cloud the fact that there was some interesting aspects teased out when it got to like specific viewing figures and information that eventually some people started to tease it out in the latter stage of it. Well well, Mick Foley's account on several occasions says they touched on something interesting here but then it was never followed up on across several issues. There's there's two elements to it really. Um, The the first element is the the Oireachtas committee itself and how awful it it, I mean it's it's easy to kick politicians but it was awful and we have to remember that this was the same committee that had done quite good work and for them in, in the large part asked excellent questions when RTE were in before them. All of a sudden you take sport and you put them in a room and it's just this gambianism takes over and, and I don't know why because sport is very serious. There's a lot, it, we spend yes, a lot of money I, in sport. I do understand that human nature of real politics, real issues. Yeah. You're talking about the children's hospital, you're talking about money. Suddenly a game not being on TV. Yeah. I can see but there that are, doesn't feel so important. There are really important questions that are still outstanding. The, the, RTE's appearance, like there was people there, like I don't know what the IRFU were doing there because they, they they just sat back and probably just watched everything happening around them. The FAI had a pretty uh, easy did, time. Did we mention we have a team in the World Cup final Friday and we're the number one team yeah, in the world? Yeah, yeah. 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 They were just like, "This is fine." The FAI had a little bit, a little bit towards the end, but it was pretty much. It was, the, yeah. like, the, it, stuff came up, and because of the way it was set up, that somebody only had four minutes. You know, with some of them, thankfully, they only had four minutes. But with others, with someone like Alan Dillon, he needed more time. Needed more time. Are we and saying Oireachtas committee structures is the new championship structure? <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to move away from the Oireachtas committee structure, and the real important thing that they they got to the door, but they didn't go through, was this whole GAA go. Tommy Conlon sums up that. So I'll, I'll, I'll read what Tommy has and then you can give us your thoughts, John. Uh, the question is whether RTE in particular is not caught in a conflict of interest. This is towards the end of Tommy's piece where he's um, charted the efforts early on, which aren't good. But then this key point, he says, uh, Alan Dillon, who did do very well in fairness, didn't beat around the bush with Declan McBennett, RTE's group head of sport. Are you not cherry picking the top GA clashes to drive profit and subscription at GA Go? He asked. No, absolutely not, replied McBennett. And the defence of GEA and I suppose by extension RTE is that the CCCC choose the games. It's that simple. And Declan McBennett said, look, we have 31 championship games that are free to air. To be fair, 16 of those are predetermined, as in we have to show the provincial finals, we have to show semifinals, we have to show finals. So actually there isn't as much choice as you would think. And... um, 
RTE pays the piper, writes Tommy Conlon, but the CCC calls the tune. Therefore, when Kerry Tyrone was fixed for the Saturday, the broadcaster had no choice but to put it on GAA Go. The bumper payday that ensued was a happy but accidental dividend. Dylan says, but why can't you broadcast that game on a Saturday? McBennett's reply, because the two games that were assigned to us that weekend were Sunday games. It's a CCCC decision deputy. After further over and back between them, Dylan accuses RTE Sport of driving profit with GA Go. McBennett, I'm, I'm not deputy. I do not accept that point. Dylan believes it's a valid point. McBennett does not. Taw or Neil, we didn't have Hawkeye to decide on this one. The debate is moot for what remains of the season, but the punters who pay their licence fee will still be very much Neil in 2024 so that kind of the, the nub of that issue is never fully so eased out or a conclusion is not quite reached Declan McBennett adamant look CCCC pick the games we get Sunday GEA gets, get Saturday nothing to do with us it's all on the CCCC and I'm not having that right okay and the reason I'm not having that is because and I think if Alan Dillon had more time he wasn't having it either and I think he I'm going to try and put words in his mouth but where I think he was going with this is there's two elements one why can't they show a game on Saturday and there seems to be a resistance not in RTE sport per se but in the institution of RTE to show live games on Saturday unless they have no choice to like an all in semi-final but more than that so, so Declan McBennett's argument was that once the draw was made, we applied to have two games, and they were Kerry and Tyrone and Dublin and Mayo. They were the two games that we wanted to show on the Sunday. CCC only fixed one of them for the Sunday, nothing we could do. Yeah. Anybody who watches the GA or knows anything about how the GA works knows that once that draw was made, there was absolutely no chance that Kerry and Dublin were going to be on the same double, double header. It just wasn't going to happen because of the logistics of yeah. the amount of people that want to actually go to the games. Yeah. So you're applying to show two games that you instinctively know are not going to be on the same bill. Yeah. So who benefits? So all, all, all you don't know when you're making that application is which game is going to be on Saturday and which game is on Sunday. That's where the CCC decision comes into. It could have been the Dubs on the Saturday and Kerry on Sunday. And Dublin would have been behind the paywall. Yeah, that's out of this weekend, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. So you, you instinctively know that that's going, what's going to happen. Uh, who benefits? RTE benefits from either way because of its connection to GA Go, and this is where we get to the nub of the problem, which is that GA Go is absolutely here to stay and is a requirement. I think if if we're going to see more games of football and hurling being broadcast whatever way then GA goes a necessity the question then is which is what they, they didn't really get to is why is it a 50-50 partnership with RTE why is it not a 100% GAA owned product that is then farmed out in whatever way after that and RTE may be required to broadcast some of the games or some other production company be whatever way it's done why does it have to be a 50-50 partnership I don't know much about how the League of Ireland thing is structured but that's but very much yeah, an FAI. It is now, yeah. Like the previous season started out being a GA go. That was a COVID thing. I, I wonder, sports yeah. want to own their own rights, and the GA. Yeah. And and the other argument about we are required to show these sixteen games. I would imagine that when RTE are in negotiations with the GA for TV rights, and you can correct me if I'm wrong in this, they hold most of the aces because there's nobody else going to pay what they're going to pay or show the amount of games that they're going to show, and they're going to say if. Dublin and Mayo are playing a backdoor match on a Sunday and it clashes with Galway versus Leitrim in a Connacht final. We're not going to show Galway versus Leitrim in the Connacht final. 
our audience will want to see Dublin versus Mayo in a yeah, qualifier but, game. Yeah. So this idea that there's a prerequisite on them to show certain games, I think, is an easy out as well. He could be, I don't know. I, I feel I feel on that point, and Declan McBenner can be quite convincing in terms of how he, yeah. he sort of deals with an argument. I would imagine that he probably is on, you know, a, contractually is probably on solid enough ground there. I think there probably is a question about how the rights deals are structured because I suppose maybe I'm coming at it from perspective of say you look at the Premier League and it's like Sky and it's BT and mm. it's packaged and it's bundled and you have bundle A and you have bundle B it does seem quite unusual that it's trying to get people's head around the fact that bundle A is with RTE and bundle B is well GA go but they're sort of also RTE of a partnership yeah. and that that it's, he's probably right on the basis of if Bundle B just happened to be with Virgin, then that would be RTE 16 games. So that's the way it would be. Like, he's probably right to a point. To me, I just step back from it, coming at it very neutrally and like not as a sort of a, a massive fan who is sort of looking at this situation of, I mean, you have, what, two quarterfinals on a Saturday and neither of them are on TV. And this is highly unusual. It is, yeah. This is highly, highly unusual. I think that's an institutional thing for RT, though. Do you rather think? Than, I do, rather than yeah. a specific RT sports uh, well, I think issue. I think if you're doling out the package, surely to a point, I would have to put back a little bit and say, well, you know, what visibility will there be for these games yeah. that we're putting out there? And maybe it's just that people are learning and they've now, all these, this Ferrari this year has highlighted things that can be easily fixed for next year. Yeah. Um, and maybe you just, you can tweak some of these things to avoid and it. I think that will probably happen. I would assume that's what's going to happen ultimately because uh, it's, it's an odd one. You know? Yeah, it's all just a little bit clouded as to how yeah. decisions are made. Like I think, for instance, so there's a lot of focus on RTE quite rightly, but I mean, Tom Ryan's point that, hey, listen, CCCC set the games. Complete, you know, there's a Chinese wall here. We, we had nothing to do with them. They're totally independent. Hey, I, well, mm. think about that. So the CCCC are of the GEA. They know that the games on Saturday go on GEA Go. They know that GEA Go is owned by the GEA. And so the better GEA Go does, the be- better for everyone. They're not so, totally independent. Like, I, d- I don't think yeah. they're blind to the fact that if they put a game on Saturday, it's going to be on GEA Go. So, I mean, the independent line... The, the totally independent beings. conjures up an image of that there's somebody from Stokes, yeah. Kennedy, Crowley brought in. and to, They're all internal so GEA like, men and women. They, they, CCCC will know GEA Go doing well is good for GEA. So actually, well, that's a juicy game. Kerry Tyrone. Will we put Kerry on the Saturday or Dublin? And, then, and, and so, like, their decision-making has to be either consciously or unconsciously informed by the fact that they want GA Go and the GA to thrive. So they put certain games on a Saturday knowing they'll be on GA Go. So I don't really buy the, oh no, we're independent. Like we do. Jeez, that was a shock to us. Was the Saturday game on GA Go? We had no idea. It's incredibly inefficient. If that's <laughs> okay. you know, like oh, I think you're 100% right. You know, that's exactly. Like, there, there, there is influence. So what's in- the point of GA Go? And, and it probably has to be similar to the GA's ethos in general, which is that there are times when it's going to show games that don't have a huge amount of public set, interest. It, it, yeah, it should and be. And there are times when it will show games that are commercially viable, viable yeah. that help it to make money. And to be fair, that's a very difficult balance, it commercially is. viable. Cause it's but very the GA is doing that every day in pretty much everything it Maybe. does. And it makes a lot of mistakes in doing it. It's and it does, some, it does some good things as well. Yeah. But sh- sh- when you like get we, to we, the last seven games of the Football Championship, you know, four quarterfinals, two semifinals, yeah. and final. should any of those games be I was on just a streaming ask, service? So I don't think so, and I don't right, think many GA people would. Then. Yeah, I was going to ask, well, do you think GA Go should be just doing the, the 
the lesser games that may only get an audience of 1,500 or 1,000 as we heard. And then once you get to anything that's in any way interesting, the GEA and so by extension GEA go should genuflect and say free to air, free no, to air. Free I, to I, air. I, I, I'm only saying quarter finals. I mean, let's say again, take a, let's say Kerry and Dublin were drawn in a group stage match and, the, and it's not on live TV. Like that would be a very commercially viable game yeah. for GEA go. I'm just saying when you get to there's seven games left in, in the football championship. Court, four quarterfinals, two semi-finals, and a final. I personally don't think any of those should be free to air. Should be free sorry, to air. Should, be that, should be on GA. Yeah, okay. At that point, I'd say a lot of people agree. That with would that. make sense. I guess the, is the argument. I presume it's a financial argument that the commercially successful games in GA go help you to pay the costs of covering games that previously would have been ten seconds. I'm, I'm not sure that. Or, or is it, or is it, or is that should that service be provided anyway I, independently? I, I'm not. I wouldn't be sure. And I mean, this is a question for RT. And again, this is something that could have been teased out and and was. What were the two games on the Saturday on GAA go simply because RTE wouldn't show them live? Was it because there was nowhere else for them to go other than GAA go, or was it that there was a contract? It was predetermined that there would be two Saturday games in the. It seems to be predetermined by the contract. Yeah, yeah, I think that seems to be the. Interestingly, RTE said they take the the profits from GAA go and use them to buy Allianz League <sighs> rights for RTE. Like, the whole thing is very energy, but a lot of it comes back to. I mean, like, see, like, like the, the, the monopoly to a degree that RG has around sports coverage in this country, in this country, and not enough hours at times, or not enough room in the schedule. I mean, there's a broader debate. I mean, that's why I felt that this broadcast not enough vehicles too. Yeah, like, and and there was stuff later on where TG Catter were being asked, "Well, what would you like to do?" Yeah. and they were talking about, you know, well, if we could get an extra two million, then maybe we could cover more. Uh, I think they were talking maybe more women's league of Ireland and maybe more women's rugby. And this is the thing, like you know, and, and this I think there is a valid criticism of RTE yeah. around this. The, the, some of the rights that they take up, they take up a lot of stuff, but then they don't necessarily have a, a home for it. An outlet for it. And it's it's you know, other stations clearly are trying to do things in a different way. Like you know, the whole point about Virgin was well, they don't want to do an outside broadcast per se of this stuff. They want to take, and I've seen that in the League of Ireland, for example. But there, there comes back to the whole issue of well. The, the service for the the viewer, you know, the 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 old the old man somewhere, you know, that is pre- presented by our politicians. That actually, there is an issue around how much RTE have and and where do you, where do you show it? You know, as that's Tom, definitely as, a Tommy, point. as Tommy Conlon describes in the cohort of gentlemen are old enough to remember ordering McCardles in the bar and the ladies <laughs> who enjoyed the baby sham in the lounge. We will take a short break. No more Rockdust talk for the rest of the paper end. You'll be uh, paper review. You'll be glad to hear Dan and John staying with us back in just one sec. So let's push on. Dan McDonnell and John Green are with us here in the studio. A few pieces to touch on before we go. Two, um, I'd say two characters if they sat down for a beer one of the days. Wayne Rooney and Ed McGeady would swap a fair few good stories and have similar perspectives on, on different aspects of the game. So they're featured here in different papers. Jonathan Northcroft has had a very close relationship with Wayne Rooney for a number of years now in the Sunday Times. Uh, helped him ghost his column and has interviewed him on occasion. And so he sat down with him once again. I checked in with Wayne Rooney. Like it, it, It's a touch cliched for us to say that Rooney comes across uh, very well in these pages in the Sunday Times, but um, he does, to be fair. I mean, he's uh, really thoughtful about how he's making his way in the game. He's in just his third year managing. 
He's had two very different difficult circumstances. He's over in Washington. Uh, I, I guess the jumping off point for this is that he's managing like an all-star MLS team against Arsenal on a pre-season match very soon. And uh, he's just chatting to Northcroft about how things are going. I look at Wenger going out to Japan. I look at Carlos Quiroz going to so many different countries. I'm not stupid and arrogant enough to think that I can go in it from scratch and manage at the top level. I feel like I've been going through a process and an education and that with every game and every week, I'm still improving and still loving it. And uh, he's talking about a very multicultural dressing room at uh, Washington. I've been reading stuff, watching lectures from Oxford and Harvard on race, understanding why people think in certain ways. Talks about the importance of religion, Muslim, Jewish, Catholic in Ramadan, for example, how you train Muslim players. These are all the things that Rooney is looking into at the moment and talks about his current team. He has uh, Christian Benteke, actually, is uh, one of the players there. He's up front with uh, Fountas. They play like Brighton. Uh, split strikers trying to stop the ball going to opposition fullbacks and keeping the game central our energy is in the middle of the pitch I never thought I'd get Benteke to play as a split striker but he's been great and uh, talks about his goalkeeper as well who Rooney can tell you is in the top 2% in the world in terms of how high up the pitch he positions himself so I said to our goalkeeper at the beginning of the season someone will score from the halfway line against you because of what I'm asking you to do and every single game says Rooney somebody tries don't worry I told him this will happen but you've probably stopped uh, 10 goals by playing sweepers, what he said to him when he did eventually concede a goal uh, by being lobbed. And uh, something I hadn't heard of, and Jonathan Northcroft hadn't either, the discovery list Amazing. is over in the States. Yeah. So uh, Rooney's like, you don't know about the discovery list? Okay. He says, take Erling Haaland. We, in theory, could put Haaland on our discovery list, and it means that if he ever comes to the MLS, but let's say he wanted to play for one of the LA teams and not us, LA would have to pay Man City and us because we quote unquote discovered him it's crazy but if you're clever you can make money <laughs> last year when Jesse Lingard signed for a year with Forrest we put him on our discovery list straight away because you thought there's every chance that after a year at Forrest he'll come to the US and that would mean we'd get money or we get to sign him I mean that is just wild <laughs> it doesn't go into how many people you can put in your discovery list but I mean you'd be thinking about slapping every superstar in their 30s on it uh, talks about treating players like adults the previous coach at Washington had them kind of hold away when, on away trips I let them go out go to Starbucks all that kind of stuff and uh, then on Messi well, like he paints a great picture of where the MLS is going the Apple broadcast deal is worth 2.5 billion over 10 years starts this season it's huge the other day the two LA teams played out the Rose Bowl in front of 82,000 everything is set up for Messi to kick on he's got all his mates Busquets and uh, Luis Suarez potentially and Jordi Alba and so uh, he may find it tough a lot of the big players find it tough the travelling the different conditions different cities there's also a lot of energy and intensity on the pitch so it's not uh, necessarily easy but he reckons soccer will pretty soon be right up there in the States and competing as the most popular sport so um, that's him I know I'm not putting words in your mouth Dan, Dan I know you sort of felt Oh, it's another interview with Rooney taking the road less travelled. Um, yeah. And I, and I get that. But it doesn't make it an unenjoyable read at the same time. Yeah, no, it is enjoyable. I know you, in the context of it, there's another piece of Aidan McGeady who, who uh, like Rooney, has probably been in, in the public eye, you know, from a very young age. Yeah. You know, same vintage. Football men. But, and Aidan McGeady definitely has more to him than people realise. You know, he's uh, will be regarded as a real student of the game, really knowledgeable about sort of almost nerdish sort of interest in football. But sometimes Times you would see him and I've experienced it very spiky sh- short punchy interview where you think oh god yeah and I suppose Wayne Rooney has experienced that too and let's be honest you know he's um, you know he's had some sort of off the 
feel scandals in his life that would lead people to sort of perceive him in a particular way. Um, and clearly America um, is allowing him to go about things differently. And it may actually sustain him in the game longer than some of his contemporaries, like you know Frank Lampard and the likes who've, who've gone quickly for jobs, but may maybe burned out quicker by the experience. Yeah. Um, and I mean, America for him, and it's a bit like, the, I don't know if people saw the Messi stuff during the week, like Messi moving unnoticed through a supermarket in Miami, you know, that you've probably spent your whole life in the pressure cooker environment of your every move, probably paranoid because of things that happened to you when you were younger. Yeah. Um, and now you get to this place where you can just sort of sit back and you know MLS is crazy like the, even the, I, I think it still exists now that you have to you're only allowed to take a certain amount of charter flights across a year you have to then otherwise fly you know commercial and you have to like and, and this is a big land for a lot of the players over there that suddenly they spent their whole life in this existence mm. and they have to do things but differently but actually some people seem to really respond to it and Rooney who has had opportunities I think to go and manage in England is maybe you know he's talking about sort of reading stuff watching lectures from Oxford and Harvard on race and learning about yeah, the different yeah. personalities in his dressing room that maybe it will stand to him to the long run or maybe he'll come back to England lose a job after three months and just be chewed and spat out oh, by the possible. machine like it could be, could be that either I suddenly uh, when you mentioned that I found myself thinking of the scene in Succession where Brian Cox who's not a sympathetic character Tom turns to him after one ordeal and says and I had to fly commercial Yeah, and Brian Cox says with real sincerity Tom, I'm really sorry to hear that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I'll ruin your life, but you shouldn't have to fly a commercial. Yeah. Uh, I, I read so these Waza. pieces. Uh, yeah. I read them back to back, actually. I read the Rooney one first. And I, I, I actually enjoyed it. I, like like Dan says, he he seems to be doing everything he thinks Shrewd. he can do. Yeah. To be, he wants to be a, a really good manager. And he, he wants to... He doesn't want to get the handy gigs or that. He wants to work at this. But... Uh, then I read the McGeady one, and and actually the the, the link that struck me between the two, because the most interesting line in the in the McGeady one was when he was talking about all the managers he's worked for, mm. and he said, "I understand when you become a manager that you have to exert authority, but I've seen managers doing so many things that annoy players. Why would you want to annoy players? You should get them on side." And I thought, yes, okay, that point. seems it's a very simple point that only a player obviously can understand. Yeah. That Rooney seems to be kind of innately following that path of does, trying yeah. to understand what it is his players need. McGeady, the theme in the McGeady piece, it's, it's in the Observer. So this comes from a UK angle, which kind of makes it interesting in its own way. So basically, McGeady is 37 and has been injured for a year, but is still desperate to keep playing. And uh, he's looking for a new club. I'm not as quick as I used to be over 40, 50 yards, but I can still get beyond people and get a shot or a cross away. I'm proud of still being able to play. And uh, he was with the uh, Hibernian last season and he's not sure where he's going to end up and you know it charts his career and there was obviously the move to Russia and then he struggled at Everton burst on the scene with um, Celtic and uh, you know he does say of managers generally Martin O'Neill underappreciated as Ireland manager as was Trapattoni his attention to detail incredible Martin might feel disrespected by people saying he's an old school manager he is compared to nowadays which is kind of like it's buried in there, but like mm. he is saying, Martin O'Neill is an old school manager. Man management's what he does best. It has changed so much in my 20 years. The dressing room I came through at Celtic was a tough school. You'd get pulled up in front of HR if a lot of that stuff happened now, which is kind of, I mean, that Vera Pau stuff uh, from the other week is kind of that w- beginnings of HR and dressing rooms interacting, which is kind of going to be an interesting uh, space over the next decade or so. But, uh, you know, it's funny how the UK looks at him. So it starts off 
Ewan Murray's piece by saying Aidan McGinney is one of the most talented Scottish footballing exports of a generation but destined never to be regarded as such his decision to represent Ireland had the strange knock-on effect of deleting his name from conversation regarding the finest products of youth systems in this case uh, Celtic so the perception in Scotland is like erased from history What's the perception of McGeady in Ireland with his 93 caps? I was sort of surprised it was 93. Two, yeah. two figures that caught me there, 93 caps and he's, he's 37. I would have had him as, as older as well. Would you? Yeah, no, yeah. The age part would make sense to me because he was one of those who just come on so early on the scene. But yeah, the 93 caps is true. Yeah, I mean, it's um, like... Well, name his moments. The goal. The goal in Georgia. Yeah, after The goal that. in Georgia. He underrated role, underrated role in Robbie Brady's goal in Lille that completely gets forgotten. I was always more um, in that he got on the ball and he was quite brave and he just he, he got he got the ball moving and it sort of set the wheels in motion for the ball getting to, to Hula and he can yeah. watch it back. He came off the bench in that game. Um, Did you give me five moments top of your head? Uh, the, some of them might involve him like kicking off at people in press conferences as opposed no, to on the pitch. But uh, um, I'd have to think about it, yeah. Um they would be the ones that would obviously spring to mind. Because I feel the perception of McGeady amongst Irish football fans would be the going to Belisi. In fairness, probably like unfairly drew groans around the Aviva when he would be brave enough to try and make something happen and it yeah. might, mightn't come off. But then allied to that a sense that, oh, never kind of... All the talent was obvious to see, the technical ability was so obvious to see, and yet, geez, did he ever fire for Ireland the way he might have? Yeah, that I'd sense of regret, maybe. Maybe a victim of the early expectations around him, because how, ex- how much excitement there was around Aidan McGeady when he was 18. Like, he was a huge, like, I'd say, like, he was a huge name, even in sort of like British football at that stage, when it was sort of compared to Ronaldinho and all this, and he really was. Like, and, I, and as I said, I always admired he went to, to Moscow, he went to Spartak Moscow, like, he learned the language, he'd like tried different things in contrast to the again the typical footballer who wouldn't go that road um, but yeah I, I kind of wonder like you look at now like Mikey Johnston come on like against Gibraltar and he now probably has a role in this Ireland squad because he tries something and there's probably few like him whereas McGeady at the time was most of his Ireland career was spent under trap I guess you know uh, maybe the, the prime of his career um, when it was a quite a rigid system um, and maybe he just yeah at times he would be denigrated but yeah there were times he didn't play as well as he could have either let's be honest you know uh, but like, it's like Jeff Hendrick sometimes these lads that have a lot of caps that have been around for a long time they just become whipping boys at a point True. which isn't which isn't always fair um, but yeah 93 caps and he, but he disappeared almost out of sight could I tell you do you remember what his last game was I was just yeah. about to ask you when yeah, was his I'm last pretty game? sure it was the, the 5-1 against it Denmark was, it says it in the piece yeah it was yeah so like he, he just like himself and Wes Hulahan come on at half time in that game um, and that was basically the the end the for end. them. It was that crazy sub the Martin O'Neill change, which he sort of broke from his personality and 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 really went for it, you know. But it's funny he mentions about him and O'Neill. Um, you know, he's like him and O'Neill write each other all the time. I can imagine that was that. the dynamic of their relationship, and they both thrive off a bit of natural conflict with people. And that's like you know, the, you kind of have to laugh at the McGeady point. You know, I think I'm perfectly easy to manage if things are done properly. I'd say you could, <laughs> I'd say you could roll out a list of his former managers who didn't uh, who, do would, who, would, who would who would who would maybe take a different view. But I think he is someone who could surprise people in the coming years in terms of as a commentator and and as a voice on football. I think. I agree. I think we'll hear more from him. Uh, you picked a pretty um, interesting piece here, back page of the Sunday 
times. It's Don McLean on the potential gambling legislation. So generally in the main, any piece now on gambling in the papers is very much uh, against gambling and the promotion of gambling in absolute terms. Whereas Don McLean here is talking about this new gambling legislation, which has been like coming for a very long time and it's finally um, here. And it like like to be fair to Don, he is talking about this in generally positive terms and he says like the, the start of a gambling regulatory authority of Ireland can only be a good thing. So it's not that he doesn't acknowledge the the serious ills that gambling can bring to lots and lots of people's lives. Uh, he mentions Michael Martin talking about this um, gambling bill. He says it introduces serious new safeguards to protect people from falling prey to gambling addiction while also balancing the freedom to enjoy responsible gambling. So Don says uh, the spirit of the bill is to protect children, protect the vulnerable, and that makes a lot of sense. To that end, however, one aspect of it is banning all gambling advertising on television between 5.30am and 9pm. And his worry is that will have far-reaching consequences for Irish racing. In particular, the two dedicated horse racing racing channels uh, have both said that they'll really struggle without gambling advertising. Now, he does disclose, Don, that he um, is in gainful employment on racing TV, but he still says there is an argument that uh, for the dedicated horse racing channels, they should be viewed differently to the advertising you might see on Virgin or TG Cahar or RTE at two o'clock in the afternoon. Um, so his worry is the likes of Racing TV and Sky Sports Racing, uh, their audiences are in the main over the age of 24. Um, and he thinks if you, if you, you know, if you damage this 2.4 billion euro worth of the economy industry employs 30,000 people, uh, it's the, the, the damage to the TV channels is that you mightn't have the same sponsorship of racing if they go under or they can't show racing. Uh, basically, an exception should be made for the dedicated racing channels, but fair enough, RTE and Virgin and those more mainstream channels. That's, that's his argument. In yeah, I mean, th- this is really interesting. This did come up during the week in the Eructus, ironically enough. As I mentioned, Shane Castle's raised it and the Sky person who otherwise was like, may not, shouldn't even have been there, you know, because everyone was having their GEA uh, go questions. Um, but they, they were talking about it. I mean, and, and I know that in the sort of the racing industry publications across the week, um, they've been s- series of columns about this. Ted Walsh rolled out, this is a massive threat to the sport. Ruby Walsh in the Examiner yesterday Again, quite similar in tone, and you know, referencing you know this this these Deloitte stats again on the the contribution to the economy, the thirty thousand jobs. A lot of them. That's my question. A lot of them yeah. are people in betting shops, ironically enough, you know. So, yeah. um, and I, I suppose I'm interested in this because we're doing a lot of stuff around the betting tax and the racing's relationship with the government this year. I mean, there's been something going on recently with the IHRB, the regulatory body of HRI. They've been in the Eructus for some very unusual hearings around, um, you know, exit packages for, you know, former employees and can't really get into that today. But I guess the broader point is that, I suppose, racing administration, the relationship with government is is uh, crucial. It underpins how it's funded, how it exists. And yet it does appear in this instance here that they're going to need a massive favour again to avoid a situation that is quite a serious one because it is laid out. I mean, if you can't advertise gambling on TV between 5.30am and 9pm, 
I mean, you watch as I do because I like I subscribe to the racing TV channel and I watch yeah. a lot of racing and people know who watch these shows what the ads are comprised of, you know, and and it's and I know, majority gambling, yeah, yeah, and I know you you know this is a big thing around football too, and there was a story during the week. I think the, one of the Irish Bookmakers Association was sort of, it was put out there, I think, in the Irish Times that Premier League broadcasts in Ireland could potentially be taken off the air because, as we know, in the ads of a Premier League game, you will see yeah. uh, a lot of ads. And if they're taken out of the equation, I mean, who's going who's gonna to fund the coverage and, and the sponsorship of the coverage of some of these sports? You know, media rights deals are very valuable. That's been an issue recently. And this is something that's probably a quite a serious story sort of bubbling under here um, and uh, you know the political world wasn't that energised by uh, during the week because they've other stuff to be going on but you feel that in time this might become a thing yeah. um, because if this you know legislation is is applied as has been laid down then there is going to be real problems for racing here but in saying that for a government's perspective you know if you introduce legislation but then you have to get to a point where you make a dispensation um, for for racing channels, that's a tricky one too. In the context of how people are becoming a lot more aware to the the problem gambling issue and how you treat it, and I know again these, there seems to be a briefing line that's going out there. Well, you know, Sky Sports Racing reports that ninety seven percent of its audience is over twenty four years of age. I mean, that may be true, but they don't all watch it on the in a room on their own. Sure, you know what I mean? Yeah, like kids. You know, I, I've raced them all, all the time, and people coming in and the house will see it. You know, so it's that is a that it seems to me being a, a racing industry we're struggling here we really need to lobby hard at this point to avoid what is going to be a very serious situation and I think it's going to I'm not sure if there's much more to add on top of yeah, it yeah. other than to say that um, it is going to be interesting because there's probably a lot more eyes now on the government's relationship with the racing industry and if you sort of you know it's a, it's a powerful lobby um, but I don't know how you easily make this one go away without it attracting a lot of commentary. In general, as a society, we're slowly, very slowly, some would argue, moving towards taking a certain position on gambling. Yeah. And I, we, we started off the show today talking about Colin Rourke, and he has spoken and written in the past about his experience in... So St. Pat's and Navin is an all-boys school. His experience of seeing the evolution of gambling and online gambling through uh, young men and the problem that it represents for, the, for, for kids that he knows and knew in school. Mm. So we're moving, in, in one instance we're moving towards a position where I think we're going to end up with gambling being very much frowned upon in society. But separate to that and, and gambling funds Irish racing at the moment, I mean that's that's basically what happens. Okay, the money comes in on the betting tax into Central Pool, but the same amount of money roughly goes back out to, to, to horse racing and, and greyhound racing. And I would think that if you're involved in, in racing, be it in any way as your livelihood, in, you know, at the top or at the bottom of it, I would say that there are so many things coming at racing at the moment that you're really feeling... Yeah under attack and this is just one of them there's the whole welfare issue in the UK which is really really starting to affect the, the views of racing there. I mean we had was it 12,000 at, at the Derby in the curl? oh the, yeah the, the, know, the, I mean, 14 maybe or really poor attendance like at the Irish Derby half yeah. what it used to be less than half what it used to be it's, it's, a, it's a sport that's really really under siege but it does have and has had in this country and in the UK a very very cosy relationship with the state 
and I think that that kind of co- the, the extent of that cosy relationship as Dan has said is under threat there are things happening behind the scenes there are scandals happening behind the scenes that are slowly starting to bubble to the surface there's the whole issue around doping which you know we've been co- looking at in the Sunday Independent and you just feel that racing as a sport is just coming under the microscope at a time now that it may become a very uncomfortable uh, yeah. period for them. Yeah, yeah. I think that's fair. Uh, just to mention, by the way, I meant to mention it at the outset, it's not in the sports uh, sections, but just before the clock comes against us. It's about John Delaney and it's Mark Ty writing about him. So um, former FAI chief John Delaney recruits Irish directors for string of firms selling products from CBD oil to adult entertainment. This is just a piece on, on John Delaney's um, post-FAI life and his current business dealings. So Mark Tice says, John Delaney is recruiting Irish contacts to become directors of brass plate style companies for overseas businesses involved in selling cannabis oil and other e-commerce schemes for €3,000 a year. He um, said to potential people he's trying to recruit, it's money for jam. It's a Sunday independent investigation. Uh, It seems Delaney has helped recruit some 10 Irish people as directors for companies that want to basically sell goods and process payments from bank accounts and companies based in Ireland. Uh, He insisted to potential suitors that it is 1 million percent legitimate. It seems that um, Mark Ty has hold of voice notes and and WhatsApp exchanges. In uh, one message, he boasted about meeting Social Protection Minister Heather Humphreys at a 195 euro ahead black tie event in uh, London. Great lady, said Delaney in the voice note. She came over to me at a function and said hello, which is very good of her. Top woman. (laughs) In um, a separate message then, Delaney said to somebody, a quick one for you. I have a scheme that can make you three grand a year and 500 quid that will help with any introductions you give. It's directorships of companies in Ireland. You can't have been a director of a company before. That's all. So a lot of my mates are doing it. It's 100% legit, by the way. I wouldn't put it to you otherwise. Text me if it's of interest and I'll send on some stuff to you, followed by a Zoom call. And then he followed that up later by saying, just a quickie, did you have a look at the proposal? Give me a shout today. It's money for jam, pal. Give me a shout back. Uh, your main duties involve uh, reviewing and signi- signing any necessary uh, documents that may be required and uh, providing them back via email or post. The Sunday Independent approached uh, Delaney's solicitor for a comment, but no surprise. And it touches again in broader terms then about his post-FAI business dealings. He's uh, set up life as a business consultant in the UK, works through his company Delay Limited and has had a baby girl with a new partner. He's under investigation, as we know, by the Corporate Enforcement Authority in Ireland for suspected company law breaches during his time at the FAI. Uh, That's currently stalled due to a three-year legal battle over uh, access to emails, which again is ongoing in the courts. And in recent months, he's worked with a number of UK football clubs on a commercial basis. Um, He was at a Birmingham City uh, corporate golf weekend in Marbella earlier this year. Hibernian's uh, head of commercial thanked him recently for helping uh, a link between Hibs and the Omnia Group Services to provide outsourced payroll work. So an array of um, different uh, dealings in the commercial world. And uh, the piece finishes by saying, by the way, spokesperson for Heather Humphrey said there was no meeting with Delaney in March. The minister was in attendance at an Irish function in London during her St. Patrick's Day visit. She passed the uh, concerned individual's table and said hello. The extent of the engagement was about 30 seconds, which uh, is fair enough. And, uh, you know, it's it's really sure that the point of it in some ways but um, I suppose John Delaney's off um, 
making a new life for himself as he sees fit this is one of the avenues I, yeah. I, you know. yeah like I mean this is it I, I suppose a lot of people I mean there's massive public interest in, in this of course and it's I mean it's like you know people have the curiosity of what happens next yet behind it all I suppose people in football is a frustration of this the, the stalled three year legal case that's that's gone gone nowhere almost in a way you know you're waiting for something to happen and like again you know already this week you have this big debate in the doll or a debate which reflects like how football f- is playing catch up majorly because as has been highlighted well probably ha- was football was sort of no idea how to go about getting funding because all of it was being funneled through the, the cult of the personality of he was the man who could make it done and it's almost like there's almost a weird reflection of that there where again he's talking to people in the amateur football community about something that was almost how the game operated here to an extent it was through this and the game is I mean the game in this country is, is looking for what people consider like eye-watering amounts but it's a product of just how it couldn't work the system for so long I mean anyway so there's great curiosity but behind it all for people there'll be frustration too you, you, you know when you have the sports minister of the country coming out practically begging soccer clubs to apply for grants and we will do everything we can to help you I mean that's how far behind soccer had, had fallen at grass. And most of them can't, a portion of them can't even apply for those grants because they don't own don't, their facilities. They don't, yeah. they don't no, have their own facilities. Like soccer is so far behind. I, I, I'm going to soccer matches now with, with my son. You know, I wouldn't have had much experience of it you know, in, in Mead, but now we're on the circuit. And you go to 90% of the grounds where he's playing a match at the weekends and the difference between that and the GA or rugby equivalents are frightening. Yeah. You know, where you're you're you regularly pull up and you get cha- you change the side of the pitch and yeah. there's no toilets or whatever. Whereas people would not accept that if they were going to a GA match. Yeah. You know? yeah. No. That's how far behind the sport has fallen and it happened because of what was going on in the FAI. We're pretty much out of time. Is there any last piece you want to just give a nod to? We probably don't have time can, to get into it as such. Can I just mention one, just a slight indulgence in the Sunday World, in the, in the news section. Do uh, Just Roy Curtis paying tribute to uh, a retired colleague, uh, Vincent Hogan, who you had here recently. A, a nice reflective piece about the, the marching of time and a few old journalists gathering for a, a farewell pint oh, re- yeah. recently. Yeah, yeah right. And Paul nice. Kimmage's piece, I would say, in the Sunday end as well. It's John's own section, so we might mention it, but his piece about a sort of a family trip arising from the death of his mother. There's not much we can add to it other than to recommend it as a reader. No, it's great. I mean, yeah. he, he um, when his mother passed away, he has this sudden concern, will, will I become a stranger with my brothers? And so he cancels one plan and goes cycling in the Pyrenees. With Pyrenees, yeah. Kevin is uh, his brother. brother and uh, he details the trip and so it's about their relationship and a family I suppose in that phase when the parents are suddenly gone and how relationships change and then it's also him remembering cycling those same roads and now wondering how the F did I ever do this mm. <laughs> you know it's tougher than I remember so uh, yeah I agree well worth a read fellas we're out of time thank you both so much we had John Green there, editor of the Sunday Independent Sports section, and Dan McDonald of the Irish Independent. Thanks, Mill. Appreciate it. Thanks, Joe. The Sunday Papers on Off the Ball.